So um, this is cardiovascular review. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about blood today. Uh, in your A&P course, we did talk about the formed elements of blood, their functions, and more specifically about hemostasis. We'll talk more about hemostasis when we get to trauma. Okay, so we'll review that then. But I think it's, it's worthwhile to talk about not only um, the heart, but also the blood vessel. So the three components of the cardiovascular system, remember, is the heart, the pump, and, and more accurately, two side-by-side -side synchronized pumps, uh, and then the blood vessels as well in addition to the blood. So the normal schematic of circulation, and then I like this kind of division of the roles of these various blood vessels of different sizes. So the aorta takes blood away from the heart, but it's the, mm-hmm. When you said Oh, thank you for asking that question. So respiratory and skeletal muscle pumps are for venous return. I'm talking about the heart itself. The heart itself is two side-by-side -side pumps, the right side pumping into which circuit? The pulmonary. pulmonary circuit and the left side pumping into the systemic circuit. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's large arteries and more so arterioles that are determining where blood gets distributed. So not just because, in fact, to a lesser degree, the influence of the autonomic nervous system, which is kind of a whole body distribution system, um, because it uses widespread nerves and the hormone epinephrine, but really local control. So I think we talked about this in the AMP class. If you remember, if it's arm day, right, then as you change metabolism, you, change, you increase heat as a result of metabolism, you use up oxygen, you produce CO2, maybe you're changing pH as a result of CO2 or lactic acid, those local environmental factors are going to cause arterioles to dilate and a larger portion of your total cardiac output is going to go to where those tissues need it. So that distribution is largely um, small arteries and arterioles. Arterioles feed into the capillary bed. Once you're in the capillary bed, the whole purpose is to be close enough to cells that diffusion of nutrients, wastes, oxygen, and carbon dioxide can take place. There isn't a capillary for every single cell. What's in between the blood inside capillaries that should always be inside capillaries and the cells of the tissues that it serves? What's in between? Interstitial fluid, right? And so you must have adequate interstitial fluid for that diffusion to occur. Yeah? Okay. Capillaries, remember, are also porous. And so the chemical constituents, including pH, of the tissue fluid or interstitial fluid should look nearly exactly like blood plasma, right? So the job of the circulatory system, remember, is to mix up the entire extracellular fluid compartment. And the extracellular fluid compartment includes the blood plasma as well as the tissue fluid. The pores in the capillary walls make sure that diffusible things, relatively small, but still sometimes pretty large, like glucose, is evenly distributed between the blood plasma and the interstitial fluid. Again, because the purpose of the blood circulatory system is to just keep mixing up that entire extracellular fluid compartment. So things that move through those pores include glucose, amino acids, ions, but not plasma proteins. And so while there are plasma proteins in the blood to help maintain osmolarity, 
These things always stay here. It's kind of like your bank reserve. There's always something in the blood that helps it hang on to water. Other small things can constantly be exchanged to support the cells. Yeah? Okay. Allowing that exchange, and it doesn't have to be a complete unloading of the blood, right? If the tissues aren't doing anything to increase their metabolism or their metabolic needs, then blood, including the oxygen it contains, may enter a small venule and then larger veins without having dropped off that oxygen, which is why you can collect blood from a large vein and still have lots of oxygen in that blood and glucose, right, and all kinds of things. When you measure laboratory values from a venous sample, you're looking at the constituents in that blood plasma, you are basically looking at the entire extracellular fluid compartment. That's the idea, right? Because if, if you're continuing to circulate, that should be mixed up and everything in the extracellular fluid compartment that is diffusible should look like the plasma content. Good, all right. Venules drain into larger veins, veins into superior inferior vena cava. In this case, they're referring to the inferior vena cava. Arterioles, arteries, venules, veins, all of those have walls too thick to allow any kind of diffusion. Okay, good. Lastly, and I might have this actually animated, I don't remember, nope. Um, this term, do you remember talking about capacitance? in the circulatory system. So in, in this figure, again, distribution by large and small arteries, arterioles especially controlling which particular tissues get that blood, capillaries for exchange, veins and venules represent some capacitance or capacity for storage. Um, so veins are thin-walled, very extensible, and you hold a certain amount of volume in those veins where the blood isn't moving very rapidly, it's moving primarily by the muscular um, pump and the respiratory pump. But if you have vasoconstriction of veins, because there's one-way flow, why is there one-way flow in veins? Uh, valves. valves, prevent the backward flow. If you have vasoconstriction of the veins, then you're pushing more fluid, more blood back to the heart. You're increasing the preload to that pump and the pump gets more efficient. So in terms, especially of your treatment of blood pressure problems, taking advantage of that, or the naturally occurring physiology, taking uh, advantage of that capacitance is really important. Okay, yes? So uh, with the veins that are returning the blood to the heart, if we narrow those, or if, constrict? if they become more constricted, that increases the it does because the valves make sure that all that blood doesn't go backwards towards capillaries, goes back towards the pump. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a way, it's a short-term way to prime the pump because the larger the volume you give to the pump, the next stroke of that pump pumps out that increased volume. Mm -hmm. How does that do synthetic and parasympathetic uh, impacts relative to the arterial supply versus yeah, yeah, yeah. So most blood vessels in the body only receive sympathetic innervation. So either you apply those chemical messages of the sympathetic nervous system or you remove them, um, which is a clean way to control blood vessels. Um, most of the time, your distribution 
is going to be governed by local chemicals that are not norepinephrine or the hormone epinephrine, so not under the control of the sympathetic nervous system, but looking at metabolic changes, temperature, oxygen, carbon dioxide, pH, things like that. But in a fight or flight response, when you know the sympathetic nervous system is active, um, it's gonna preferentially, because of the distribution of the receptors for those chemical messages, favor shunting or distributing your cardiac output to the muscles involved in fight or flight and constricting other blood vessels. So the difference is what are the receptors and what kind of metabolic machinery they are they associated with in those two different groups of blood vessels. If the tissue is supposed to be helping you in fight or flight, norepi and epi are gonna cause vasodilation, but if those tissues are not involved in fight or flight, it's gonna cause vasoconstriction. Does that answer your question for arterials? Yeah, is it, is it a similar impact on the venous? So, in, so there's multiple things. I mean, all of these tissues have multiple receptors, so you can have overlapping mechanisms. In fight or flight, um, norepinephrine and epinephrine tend to cause pretty significant venous constriction. Uh, so you can't, uh, start, you can't find a vein to start an IV because they're in fight or flight. Um, and their blood pressure is low, <laughs> uh, or they're low on volume. Um, so it tends to cause vasoconstriction to help improve preload so you can increase cardiac output to support fight or flight. There's other things, vasopressin is released, angiotensin is activated, so lots of things can cause that peripheral venous constriction. <clears throat> Please. When you talk about taking advantage of uh, yes. So you, you have a volume of blood in relaxed veins that if you constrict that, those veins will push, because of one-way valves, push that blood back to the heart. If you push a greater volume of blood back to the heart, to the pump, um, just, just like any other engine, right, and we're mostly concerned about the left ventricle, so single-cylinder engine, more preload means greater output, cardiac output. Cardiac output is what we're measuring here in part by blood pressure. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Jess, I don't want to confuse everyone, but I get a sense that like, as you guys think about what this all means as far as your blood pressure goes, and why do people pass out if they, if they see the sight of blood, or if they get a shot in the arm or something like or, that? Or that they... part has always been hard for me to define in my mind. Like if, I think, Okay, fight or flight means that you are getting ready to get the hell out of here. Yes. Or fight. Yeah. And of those two things, why would you ever faint like one of those stupid goats, you know? That <laughs> like, so That's me. That yeah. I am a fainting goat. So yes. <laughs> Don't you remember? No. Oh, short story. <laughs> so my kid on this first day, this was Crash 2001, uh, uh, he wrote about it in the school. In second grade? Yeah, he, 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 uh, he was doing so well in his ski lessons that the instructor said, well, let's go up on chair two. It'll be fine. But he saw that wide open uh, slope, and he got scared, and he sat on the back of his skis. And I am skating on my skis. Because the instructor said, we're going to do this. I said, oh, I'm going to watch this. Oh, my God. So I am going as fast as I can, and I watch him hit a tree well around a Douglas fir and literally like Wiley Coyote tag the tree um, and then drop into the tree well. And I don't know how it happened, but I'm like, I, I kicked off my skis, I threw my poles, my gloves, everything, dove into the tree well, 
to hold the head stabilization. He broke his maxilla. He hit the tree so hard, broke his maxilla, um, put his bottom teeth through his lip, through here. Um, and so, I mean, his so, he was so bruised. He still has this adorable dimple because he has so much scar tissue in his oh, cheek, yes. yeah. Um, anyway, Garat was on, I'm getting to the why I'm a fainting goat. Garat was, so I don't faint in those kinds of situations. I faint in when you startle me. So I went to the station, I think he was at six, five, anyway, uh, brought brownies. And he thought it would be funny to scare me as I walked around the corner. And so I'm on the ground and his brownies are all over the fucking floor. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Which is exactly what he deserved. <laughs> Yeah, so he, he, uh, scared, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> unless you want to see it happen. Yeah, 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 it's bad. Oh, I know. And it's exactly what it looks like because I like, like starfish out and then pff, done. Yeah. So for me in my mind, it's always hard for me to define. Oh, yeah, sorry. Am I dealing with like a vasovagal situation where you were shaving and you hit your carotid receptor and that actually dumped your heart rate, yeah, yeah, yeah. or are you, and that's why you had syncope, or are you actually dealing with someone that saw something scary, and now, and I think I finally was able to start yeah, yeah, understanding yeah. was that you are dumping blood into your muscles yes. to get ready to go, yes. and it dumps enough into your muscles without actually having that contraction stuff yet, yeah. and you faint. Yeah, if you don't have the skeletal muscle pump of fight or flight, then all your blood gets pushed over onto the arterial side, there's nothing on the venous side, so you lose your preload and your cardiac output tanks. Right, so the difference would be you're actually tachycardic and experiencing true fight or flight. Yes. And that's very different than someone who has a low heart rate from a vasovagal response. So as you guys are sitting there trying to define the syncope on scene, you're like, why the heck did this person pass out? Here they got a heart rate of 110. Yeah. And yet they have no pressure right now, and they still don't have a pressure. And this is frequently for me, it's been the people who get plasma for some reason. They see, they, they've given plasma, and it kind of, yeah, I guess it's maybe a second. After, after, afterwards, yeah. And then there. So that's maybe not the great scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I know that when you have tachycardia, but you still have hypotension, and you're, you're trying to blame it on a vasovagal, and you're, and you're defining a vasovagal response, like, oh, someone saw the side of blood or something. That's, right. That is different, actually, than someone who had some vagus response from abdominal pain or from shaving or burying yeah, yeah. in the toilet. Yeah. Those people actually get a low heart rate, and that's why they faint, because their heart is... Right. So a vasovagal... Yeah, so exactly. A vasovagal response is a response to... Uh, perceived high blood pressure and or or act you know right yeah. so so it decreases heart rate um, to try so you're actually your body's actually trying to lower your blood pressure whereas in 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 yes yeah because the vagus nerve is a parasympathetic nerve right. right so that's a reaction to real or perceived high blood pressure um, and and this is uh, trying to uh, shunt blood, yeah, <laughs> shunt blood to yeah, preferentially so to so skeletal muscles, to yeah. Larger arteries now in your, in yeah, your yeah, yeah, muscles yeah. Muscles, you actually dump your pressure. Right, for that right. With still potential tachycardia. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, this is I think a thing that is very difficult to define. And now that we got her here to kind of explain, you know, the chemical mediators that that serve the sympathetic side. 
um, for muscles, for fight or flight, also that same chemical mediator, uh, acetylcholine, no. No. On the parasympathetic side, what's your... So, but we don't, we don't innervate any blood, many blood vessels with the parasympathetic nervous system. There's just a few examples. Um, most of the time, especially when you're talking about blood pressure that you can measure in the systemic circuit, we're only dealing with presence or absence. And then the same chemical messages bound to different receptors cause vasoconstriction in digestive organs. So really, the big, the big fix to that kind of fight or flight um, uh, syncope, right, caused syncope, is what your body will normally do, make you go flat, Right? You're not working against gravity, so that helps perfuse your brain better. And then the blood vessels of your digestive organs will eventually respond to that, constrict, and push blood through their capillary beds back into the venous side, and that will improve your preload. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, in fight or flight, you constrict your gut and yep. you expand your vessels in your arteries. Your right. Vessels, so you yeah. And that's why a lot of times fight or flight stuff, like, someone has chest discomfort or something, they'll also get nauseated. Like, why the hell does that make sense? But um, I believe it to be the fact that you've now pushed all your blood out of your gut yeah. to manage your fight or flight. The other systems yeah. are more important, and then you get nauseated because of it. Yeah, and or you're not, you're not perfusing your medulla very well, and it's irritating the vomiting center too. Yeah, okay. yeah. So people, people can, you know, have a decreased LOC and start throwing up just because their brainstem is not being perfused well. Yeah. So would it be le less likely to see the acyclobus um, episode from sympathetic response in somebody who does have more muscle tone? Is it, is it something you'd see more commonly in smaller, leaner folks? The muscles have to be contracting no so matter what. Yeah, yeah. You, you actually have to shorten the muscles because the muscles will bulk up and that will squish the veins and force blood back to the heart. Yeah, so you have to be moving. So you could be very fit standing at attention in the military and, right? Because you're not actually using the skeletal muscle pump. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. with the visible response, we see bradycardia. Do we also see the switching off of the parasympathetic response for the vessels to cause the vasodilation, or is it only the reduction of heart rate that causes the drop in blood pressure? Uh, so let me make sure I get your question correctly. So after that fight or flight syncopal episode. Or he's sorry, trying to define the vasovagal. the vasovagal one. Oh, the vasovagal one. Yeah. yeah. So you have abdominal pain. Right. Or you've locked your knees yeah. in the military, like you're saying. Right, right, right. And now you've had actually a parasympathetic response. Vagal response. Not necessarily. You don't necessarily have to have either a fight or flight or a vasovagal episode to to have a syncopal episode, right? If you're just standing here not using your skeletal muscle pump, and especially in a hot on a hot day, for example, um, then you then you're just yeah yeah yeah. You just have no venous return, and your and your your blood vessels are dilated for thermal <laughs> regulation, and so it's similar to that, but it's not truly fight or flight. Um, I guess what I was getting at is um, the visible response, you can see a drop in heart rate, but is there also a reduction in, para in parasympathetic, uh, in, in vessel tone? Do we see in the vessels dilated as well in that response? 
or is it just the drop in heart rate that causes that drop? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you you will eventually. So here's the here's the thing: in a young, healthy person that has a vasovagal episode, they're going to bounce back pretty quickly because the sympathetic nervous system will try to respond to because that's a normal reflex. If we have poor pressure in our carotids or in our aortic arch. You, you will shift the balance of parasympathetic and sympathetic in favor of sympathetic because you can have both happening at the same time. The problem with the elderly people that have a vasovagal episode is the, the primary effector in trying to improve your blood pressure is your heart. And if your heart is compromised in any way, previous MI, congestive heart failure, you know, whatever, then their pump just can't respond to that sympathetic counterbalance. Yeah, yeah. Have you guys ever been on folks that have a low heart rate? and it just doesn't seem to come up. Like, why are you still at 48 on your heart rate? And yeah, well, yeah. Not, not even made one, but a young, healthy person. Sometimes it takes a while to reduce whatever the vagal response is yeah, yeah. that seems to be plaguing them. Yeah, so yeah. It can happen like that. Like, yeah. Why the hell aren't you responding? Your sympathetic side should be responding now, right. creating a higher heart rate, right. and helping you recover. But for some reason, it can take a while. But I've been so disappointed thinking, oh, this person's going to respond. Just give them a little yeah, bit yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you are 15 minutes later still on scene. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another blood pressure still 70 over something. What the hell's going on? Your heart yeah, yeah. rate's still only 52 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so then you have to go to the hospital and work it out there. But there isn't a good definition even at the hospital of why they did not end right. up getting their rate back up to normal. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time you get to the hospital, they're, they're fine. They're like, why are you I know. Yeah, yeah. So here's, here's, a, here's a horrifying thing that I'm trying to combat in advance. The university wants to have a policy that if someone faints, faints in the cadaver lab, it's always a 911 call. Always. I'm going, yeah, no. <laughs> but there's, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't want to be, I, I, I actually don't think it's going to happen that often. I've talked with lots of lots of people, and as long as you prepare students well enough in advance, and they know they can step away, they don't have to be close, and you know, and yeah, anyway, hopefully it's not going to happen very often. All righty, slide two. Oh, no, sorry. The sweaty skin is due to the parasympathetic response. Sympathetic. To the sympathetic. To the sympathetic. Yeah, sweat glands are innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. And so if you see the sweatiness, it's because you're trying to count. You're saying following a vasovagal episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be in response to pain. Depends on what caused it in the first place. It could be in response to uh, the low blood pressure, and now you're activating the sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, sweating is part of thermoregulation, part of fight or flight. Every other fluid, um, in terms of coming out of the body. Sludge, <laughs> which is the sludge acronym. Sac uh, oh, I've heard of it before. Lacrimation, urination, defecation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. But sweat is sympathetic. Correct. Yeah. Uh, with the nausea. Yeah. Is that because we have sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation of the GI? So yes, you do have dual innervation of the GI tract. Can that be caused from either one, either hyperactivity or hypoactivity, or is that So stimulating the, the <clears throat> nausea and vomiting center of your brainstem, which is a protective reflex, um, can occur because there's 
too much distension. There's pain associated with something. There's um, toxins. There's, yeah, I mean, all kinds of things. But that would be a reflex arc and not the autonomic nervous system saying, here, be nauseous, you're nauseous here. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. And, and something is not right, so it's kind of like uh, your house fly that before it takes off, always poops. Right? <laughs> so, so Always. <laughs> it is true. At least I, th I like to believe it's true. I read it one time that oh, every time a fly takes off, it poops. <laughs> Everything, everything a fly lands on will have fly poop on it. All right, we don't have to spend too much time on this slide, but again, two synchronized side-by-side -side pumps, the right side pumping into the pulmonary circuit, the left side pumping into the systemic circuit. Um, which of these two vessels, pulmonary artery, aorta, is going to have the higher pressure, and why? Left ventricle what? Okay, uh, but so I think that more answers how, how you get the bigger pressure. The left ventricle is a thicker walled, stronger contractile force, but why is there more pressure in the, in the systemic circuit? The requirement for fueling your body. Yes, yeah, so related to that and the distance over which you have to move that blood, right? So you're gonna have to have a lot more pressure if you're gonna move water through several um, hose lengths, so. All right, so much more pressure, bigger, thicker, more muscular wall in the aorta, um, and then branching into smaller arteries and arterioles to distribute that cardiac output from the left side. Um, notice that there's a branch of, off the aorta that serves the liver, and then there's also the hepatic portal vein, right, that also supplies the liver with blood, but this blood is rich in nutrients absorbed from the digestive tract, the hepatic artery off of a, a branch of the aorta supplies oxygen to the liver. Yep. Okay. That's what I was, you just said it there. Okay. So the artery supplies the organ of the liver and the, the vein supplies the nutrients. Yes, from, from that have been absorbed. And also, uh, and it filters the vast stuff. Exactly. Filters, the detoxifies, stores. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Makes its own products from those nutrients. So it gets first crack at the groceries that are coming in. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. And so the other thing that I think this figure is helpful for, not only does it review pulmonary and systemic circuits in a, in a diagrammatic way, but it reminds you that you have a finite volume of blood, right? If that blood volume decreases, the pump's going to have to do something to try and maintain adequate pressure for adequate flow. So the same physical principles of water flow in a hose distribution system apply to the cardiovascular system. All right, so you can look up at the figure as we quickly review anatomy. What's that? Right ventricle, this valve. On the right, having an R in it. Mm -hmm. This is? Mm -hmm. What do you call these things that attach the bottom? Excellent. Um, and the finger-like projections from the... Good, good, good. Which are made of? 
papillary muscles. muscle. They're made of cardiac muscles, so they contract also when the ventricle contracts. Um, in white here, they're showing a branching system. It's not only in this part between the two ventricles. So I'm sorry, I've asked two questions. Right now, this structure between the two ventricles is the interventricular septum. And in white, what are they trying to depict here? Purkinje fibers, the last of the cardiac conduction system, right? Where does the cardiac conduction system begin? Which is located where? Superior posterior wall of the right atrium, right up here. So generally in the conduction of electricity, it goes from right towards the apex of the heart, right? Okay, so there's a direction to the normal flow of electricity and that flow of electricity has two components. It has a depolarizing phase and a repolarizing phase, right? And when you measure that electrical conduction, there's a time component. How fast is the paper moving, right? The pen on the paper um, and a directional component. And I think those are big things to remember that if you're, if you're conducting correctly, you'll be able to see on the EKG tracing the correct duration of that electrical conduction in terms of time and also the correct direction if there's an, a blockage in the way electricity gets pr uh, transmitted through the heart, it will take a detour, right? And if you take a detour or it takes you longer to get there, you will see the effects on the EKG tracing. EKG, even though we're going to be reviewing action potentials, remember that when you measure electrical activity in the heart, it's measuring huge populations of cells together. And while we say they're synchronized, obviously it takes some time to spread across both atria. It takes a little bit of time to get down to the apex. It takes time to completely depolarize all of the, the huge population of cells in the ventricles. So when those bundles get, the bundles of Purkinje fibers get blocked? So when the, the bundles that are in the interventricular septum, yeah. those bundles in particular. So with the electrical current. It's like a river being blocked, right? And then yes. It's got to find its own way cell by cell around that? Absolutely, yes. And what is a block? What is, when you say block, what are you thinking when the, a bundle branch is blocked? What does it really mean? It's, it's not conducting. Why is it not conducting? Ischemia or, Ischemia or death. Yes, yes. So it's unable to maintain the distribution of ions because it's not producing enough ATP to run sodium potassium pumps, for example, or it's fully undead and replaced by scar tissue. And so if you don't correct that ischemia, if it actually infarcts and the cells die, then, um, then you'll have a permanent block. Yeah? Uh, Purkinje fibers like the bundle of his. Okay, so Purkinje fibers are the last part of the cardiac conduction system, which we'll review. The bundle of Hiss is going from at the top of the interventricular septum leading into the right and left bundle branches. So, like, the bundle of Hiss, is it a nerve? So, we'll come back to that, but in the short answer is everything that you see in the heart, um, except for the blood vessels, which are their own organs, is cardiac cells. So even the cardiac conduction system are modified cardiac muscle cells that this is a little misleading because it shows it right in the thickness of the muscle. But for the most part, they lie just underneath the endocardium and then branch into the muscle. Uh, but they're modified cardiac muscle cells that don't have the contractile machinery. So they act like 
the potential of every other cardiac muscle cell to generate electricity spontaneously, right? Um, but their job is to focus on conduction and delivery of voltage and not contraction. So that's why those Purkinje fibers or the, the bundles, right, or left bundles are susceptible to uh, a block in blood flow. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Was, because they're served by the same branches off the coronary arteries. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. always picturing like the bundle of hiss and the Purkinje fibers as like just being like a nerve. And I was like, how do you, right. how do you occlude blood flow in a nerve? Uh, just to answer that question, large nerves have their own blood supply, right? There's connective tissue in those large peripheral nerves. So if you sit cross-legged, right, and your foot goes to sleep, it's because you've cut off the blood supply to that portion of the nerve. Yeah, so they have capillaries inside supported by connective tissue in the nerve. Um, so if I reflect back a little bit, these atria, you see a branch here off of the root of the aorta, okay, serving the right side, that is the right coronary artery. And it's, under, it's branching off the, the root of the aorta underneath the pulmonary artery, yeah, leaving the right ventricle. So this is the left coronary artery, and then traveling right in that sulcus alongside over the top of the interventricular septum is the left anterior descending. Mm -hmm. So there are circumflex, yes, is uh, uh, high here, right? Circulating around, right? Yeah. On the back here, draining all of these, the blood from the capillary bed of the muscle, collects in this area right here called the coronary sinus. I read a very interesting article recently that people are actually putting in anti-stents, if you will. Uh, they're little metal cages that look like stents, only they restrict blood flow through the coronary sinus. Coronary sinus is going to bring that blood, since this is part of systemic circulation, the coronary circulation is part of systemic circulation, is going to bring it back to the right side of the heart. Right? And so by restricting blood flow through the coronary sinus, they're producing a back pressure into the capillary bed of the cardiac muscle and improving gas exchange that way. Isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the indication that I saw this for was for just kind of uh, uncontrollable, constant angina, stable angina pain. Yeah, so it just kind of... Someone who's not a candidate for a stent necessarily. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, artery, yeah. But yeah. general profuse... Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. there isn't a single line of attack, you know, just, yeah, yeah, poor circulation everywhere. Yeah, so interesting. All right, good job. Anything else on anatomy that you want to... Uh, broadly, yeah. the right coronary artery serves the... Right ventricle, right atrium... So importantly, a right coronary artery issue could knock out your SA node, could compromise your AV node. Yeah. And the inferior portion of the ventricles, yes. Yeah, including the, um, mostly all the way down to the apex of the heart. Yeah, and we'll, we have some figures to look at for that too. Yeah. Left anterior descending. So a lot of these lesions that result in an MI don't happen overnight, right? Um, yeah, it's still, it's still snowing good. Um, 
And so there's often a lot of collateral growth, but you can have a clot form because one of those lesions breaks. Um, the analogy we used before is the speed bumps at the bank in the bank parking lot that have all the paint and stuff scraped off the top. So if you have a lesion in the lining of your blood vessel, it produces friction. And if you scrape that and an endothelial cell flips up, platelets are going to cause a clot. And in the Yeah. Like a mm -hmm. what, is, what do you mean when you say lesion? Just by an opening? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think you're right. I think some people will say a, uh, a, a lesion that predisposes you to an MI kind of thing or a clot formation, thrombus formation. So that lesion are the, are the abnormal pathological changes in the wall of the vessel that results in the speed bump development. That's a lesion. Um, when the endothelium obviously breaks loose and exposes underlying tissue, that's, that's a lesion causing the clot. Um, but they'll also say, you know, we cleared the clot, we cleared the lesion, we stented it, you know. So that's kind of a squishy term. Okay. Yeah. It's used a lot. Lesion? Yes. For in a lot of... Brain stuff too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just means, just, yeah. Yeah, it's something bad. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean a promise, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can we just, yeah. It's either good or bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you call the muscle of the heart? Myocardium. Myocardium. Good. Um, and the heart, so we're, we're seeing this heart because this membrane has been reflected back. That's the parietal pericardium, rather, and it's reinforced with a lot of collagen fibers. Do you remember seeing that? when we did the pig pluck. Really, really tough, can't, can't tear it like a business, you know, those business cards that you can't tear. Um, and so there's not a lot of space here between the parietal pericardium when it's intact and the surface of the heart. The surface of the heart is covered with visceral pericardium. And so there's just a thin film of watery serous fluid between those two layers, right, in the pericardial cavity. Because that parietal pericardium is so fibrous and isn't extensible, of course, any fluid that collects, any excess fluid that collects in the pericardial cavity can only have one effect. It's not going to expand the pericardial sac. It's only going to press on the heart. It doesn't expand at all. It doesn't really expand at all. No. Maybe over time. Maybe over time. Yeah, that's true. Pericarditis or something where you got some some general fluid kind of gathering yes. over time, but not right away. Yeah, in not in an acute situation. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Or a ruptured ventricle ruptured or, or mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's true, because when I worked in pathology, I remember I got, I had a specimen, uh, it was almost a liter of fluid that they collected by a pericardial synthesis. Yeah, yeah, almost a liter. Yeah, yeah, because he had chronic cardiac myopathy, viral, I think a viral cardiac myopathy, yeah. How does that relate then to the capacity of the ventricle specifically to stretch? So muscle tissue can stretch quite a bit. So and if your sac is limited, how much are you really able to expand within that sac that's not able to So over time, right, you can increase the capacity of that pericardial sac as the heart enlarges. Okay. 
yeah, so that's a slow process. And acutely, so I didn't say this accurately at first, acutely, if you have an accumulation of fluid that shouldn't be there, there's no time for that sac to expand. Yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah. Like, like right. blunt trauma to the chest and your heart is now leaking blood into the... Yeah, and a lot of times that kind of, that kind of sudden stop thing, um, <laughs> the vulnerable places are right where these major arteries are attached to the heart because the heart is movable. Um, but because of the way your, your arteries are anchored, uh, not so movable, so you rip. Yeah. Ligamentum arteriosum, as far as I know, does, is not one of those sites of tear. Um, it's usually right at the root of, for example, the pulmonary artery. Ligament arteriosum is a former pathway between the pulmonary artery and the aorta during fetal development because there's no reason to um, separate pulmonary and systemic circuit. So as soon as you take a deep breath uh, after birth, then this constricts and stays constricted and eventually gets converted into connective tissue. A lot of the, kind of the old school thought, and you're more accurate because you're actually an AMP instructor, but a lot of the old school thought is that that is a, a tether point, that that is an area when your heart flings forward that will be blamed mm. for mm. a tear that then leads to a pericardial uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. that it is frequently, you guys, well, you're right to, to think of that because it's, you'll hear medics trying to quiz you with that, even Dr. Wayne will probably bring it up sometimes, oh. where's the most frequent spot that your uh, heart will tear Seriously? sudden decelerates, well, it's ligamentous arteriosum, you know, and, uh, and then you'll have the answer right. But um, it isn't actually true, and I remember asking you this before. Yeah, yeah. Mom, that's not actually accurate, but um, huh. we did an autopsy on a guy who had that same thing when I was yeah, in yeah. school. He had a telephone pole, and we were able to dissect around his heart and see that, yeah, his heart bled out almost mm -hmm. immediately with a big tear to his arteries. But to define the ligamentous arteriosum, it wasn't that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was because that's saying, that's so really tear. high up. I know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just a term. People yeah. I mean, the other, the other, <laughs> the other, the other common place for a for an aortic dissection, not necessarily due to trauma, is right where the two holes are at the base of the aorta. So a lot of times they'll tear from right coronary artery to left coronary artery. Yeah, yeah. I watched I watched that happen to a woman uh, in the ER one time, and it was very. She just went blue, 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 and dead. Yeah, I mean, like. Oh my God, what's happening? Yeah. She had chest pain. And what was yeah. the cause of that? She dissected. She, she apparently had Marfan syndrome. She was young. She's in her 30s. Yeah. What's Marfan Marfan syndrome is a collagen metabolism disorder where you, you, um, you know, there's several physical characteristics like not, not Brew Baker, <laughs> but um, Abe Lincoln probably had it. So you're very tall, very thin. You have what are called spatulate fingers, so long fingers, but they kind of end frog-like, um, <laughs> like spatulas. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so a fair number of basketball players, especially those basketball players that, that uh, dissected the aorta while they were playing basketball, uh, usually tear from right coronary artery to left coronary, or one way or the other between those two. Yeah, because that's a weak so part. Bad connective tissue. Bad, bad collagen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> does Brubaker have Marfans? Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think there is an aneurysm that. So there's there's no way to. 
identify it in advance unless you someone is paying attention and says, I wonder if you have Marfans. Um, they might say, don't be a race car driver. Right. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because of Marfans? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's a body type for spontaneous pneumo, tall, slender males, but yeah. 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 Alrighty, slide three. <laughs> slide three. You're here all day, So cardiac muscle tissue is different than smooth muscle tissue, is different than skeletal muscle tissue, even though they share some common characteristics. What are the common characteristics of all muscle tissue? Physical, chemical, operational. Uh, they don't all have striations, but what do the striations mean? Intercalated. Not intercalated discs. So we're looking for all things, things that are common to all three types. They have actin and myosin. They have actin and myosin. So when you see striations, it's a regular arrangement of actin and myosin. But smooth muscle has more of a basket weave kind of arrangement, which you can't see under the microscope. So actin and myosin for the contraction, physical contraction, that interaction between those filaments to shorten the muscle cells, what else is common? Structure or function? All muscles contract, and there is a length-tension relationship to that, right? Um, so the longer the initial length, potentially the, more, the greater the distance that you're going to contract, because every muscle cell tends to contract to the greatest extent possible at the time. Now smooth muscle cells, because of their shape, they're kind of spindle shaped. We talked about this before with that basket weave arrangement of actin and myosin, they're like the finger traps. Yeah. So if you shorten them with contraction, they tend to get fatter. So the purpose of smooth muscle is not so much to bring this point closer to that point, but it's to get fatter and compress on the contents of a hollow organ. What stimulates contraction in muscles? What stimulates that interaction between actin and myosin? Uh, calcium entering the cell and telling the, the yes. ports on the, the sister ATP comes up and yeah, up so, the yeah, so calcium is a common trigger to initiate that interaction. But the calcium could come from internal stores in the sarcoplasmic, sarcoplasmic reticulum or could come from the extracellular fluid or both. Yeah, but calcium is common. What triggers that release of calcium? Mm. The electrical current. Electrical current. So related to the movement of ions, so the action potential or electrical current. So that's common to all muscle cells. Conduct electricity before you contract. Um, somebody, uh, somebody said something that I wanted to. Um. Oh, and it's not. ATP dependent, right? So the release of calcium does not depend on ATP. The conduction of electricity does not directly depend on ATP. But the contraction itself? But the contraction itself, when, when myosin starts to pull on actin, yes, you do need ATP. Mm -hmm. OK? So the release of calcium, voltage gated. Yeah, action potential, voltage gated ion channels. Hmm? Okay, and then unique to cardiac muscle are the presence of intercalated discs, 
which represent where two or more cells, because cardiac muscles can be branching, meet end to end and are united by tunnels called gap junctions. Sound familiar? So that the cytoplasm of this cell is essentially the same as the cytoplasm of this cell, is essentially the same as the cytoplasm of that cell. So we have a syncytium, right? We have one <laughs> syncytium. <laughs> uh, so everybody is united. Syn means with or together. So all these cells connected to each other by gap junctions act like one cell. Their cytoplasm is continuous. So if one cell has a flow of ions that results in voltage, so will the adjacent cell connected to it by gap junctions. The gap junctions are for the uh, movement electricity only? So gap junctions in cardiac muscle tissue, because there are more than one kind of gap junction, are large enough to allow ions like sodium and potassium to move through, but also ATP and glucose. Mm -hmm. So when Nick was talking about the obstructed river and then the, the energy needing to follow a yeah. separate path. Yeah, in, in the cardiac conduction system. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, would that be facilitated by gap junction? Yes, it would. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so we talked a little bit about this, I think, last time when we were talking about research. But in the immediate trial where patients presenting with STEMI were given an IV or placebo, uh, containing concentration glucose, insulin, and potassium. The idea was to try and put so much glucose into the bloodstream that the unaffected, the cardiac muscle cells unaffected by the infarct would be able to transfer glucose to the cells now cut off from their blood supply, and they would be able to maintain function. It did work. It did work. So, so what I had said is, um, it didn't affect survival because we have good pre-hospital care, we have good hospital care, um, but it did reduce the size of the infarct by 50%, statistically significant. And that was doing what by IV? Glucose. glucose. And then also insulin, and because the movement of glucose involves the movement of sodium, it involves the movement of potassium, so the whole infusion contained glucose, insulin, and potassium. So if that is the case, yeah, yeah. Why, since all the cells are connected anyway, why does the body not do that? Because diffusion, the rate of diffusion depends on concentration gradient. And the body does do that, right? You don't often see it. You're not going to treat it in the pre-hospital setting. But almost every single MI, when they get to the hospital, gets started on an insulin drip because their glucose shoots way high, even if they're non-diabetic. So your, your body, in essence, of course, it is a giant fight-or-flight response, and it's one of the things that happens with fight-or-flight responses. But perhaps, you know, it means that you're going to be able to send, hopefully, more glucose via gap junctions to the affected cells. Your body's already minimizing the Trying to. Trying to. Yeah. 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 The other, the other intercellular junction that's that's located at these same locations as gap junctions because it's a seam, right? It's, it's, you need to tie these cells together are those desmosomes. Um, yeah. All righty. Yeah, that lace the cells together. Pro proteins that lace the cells together so they can withstand that physical stress. Okay. And before we move on, this blue question here, right? 
you should be able to answer. What are the two ways in which the strength of contraction, which is related to how much you can shorten, right? Yes, so stretch is one, and that's all about preload. That's the Frank Starling law. So if you can increase venous return by either taking a big deep breath, right? A lot of times before you go do something strenuous, you automatically do that. That increases preload to the heart. You're ready to go. And what else? What else can interact or increase the interaction between actin and myosin? Not necessarily more ATP, but more calcium. Yes, more calcium. And so if there's a way to get more calcium into these cardiac muscle cells, you can encourage more interaction between actin and myosin. Right? So how does that relate to the increased contractility then that uh, norepine? Yeah. Is, how does so before I answer that question, just a quick look here at the general schematic of those thick filaments made of myosin with their oar-like heads that are going to grab on to the thin filaments of actin. And so pull those actin filaments in a sarcomere towards the middle, shortening the muscle cell. Right? Every place that myosin wants to or has the potential to bind to actin has to have calcium on it or it can't do that. Right? It can't, it, those active sites are covered up. Um, this is the detailed picture of what an actin filaments, and there's, in addition to the beads of actin, each one with a handhold for myosin to grab onto, there are these other two proteins. Tropomyosin, this long filamentous protein, and troponin and calcium binds onto that troponin. So there's going to be several binding places for calcium along the length of that actin filament. And the more calcium on the troponin, the more binding sites exposed. Right? It's directly related. It's directly related. It's directly related in the short term as well as the long term. So troponin is, go ahead, please. Just explain that one more time. Yep, yep. Okay, and then I'll answer your question too at the same time before we move on. So these thin filaments that myosin with its motor proteins, its, its ore-like processes to pull that actin uh, towards the middle, actually looks like this with two other proteins associated with it. A long filamentous protein that hides all the active sites where myosin could bind, and then troponin, a protein where calcium actually binds, changes the shape of troponin and rolls that filamentous protein out of the way, at least right in that segment, exposing all of the active sites on actin. Because there is a troponin, down the entire length of that thin filament, you can have more or less calcium bound to troponin. There's a direct relationship between how many troponins have calcium and how many active sites are exposed. And the more active sites exposed, the more interaction between myosin, it's adding more people onto your tug of war. More people means stronger contraction. Is it a one for one or is it not that exact? It's not exactly one for one, um, but it is a direct relationship, yeah. So in skeletal muscle, all the calcium comes from internal stores in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. In smooth muscle, virtually all the calcium comes from the extracellular fluid. And so it has to diffuse in 
And in smooth muscle, as a result, you get a squeezing action as opposed to a twitching action. Cardiac muscle, a large portion of the calcium comes from storage in cisternae in those cardiac muscle cells, but you also have calcium channels on the surface of those muscle cells. So in direct response to your question, if you activate fight or flight and you send, you release norepinephrine from the sympathetic nerves that innervate the ventricle muscle and or you have epinephrine in the bloodstream binding to those same receptors, those receptors open up those surface calcium channels, so chemically gated calcium channels. Now you have additional calcium coming into this picture from the extracellular fluid exposing more active sites, increasing the strength of contraction. So that's the actual action of the synthetic? Yes. Yep. On the ventricle muscle. Okay. And then, of course, you can't, you can't divorce that from the effects of norepi or epi on the SA node, which are going to increase heart rate. Right. The result is, right, this is why we asked about the two ways that you can increase strength of contraction. Um, if you increase heart rate and you increase the strength of contraction, you've increased both components of cardiac output. Right? Heart rate and stroke volume. Yeah. Uh, and when measuring troponin, well, yes, how thank is you. related to when, you, when you're trying to identify MI? Yes. So troponin has become, because there's a specific um, type of troponin protein in the heart, it's kind of replaced a lot of the other um, laboratory tests that they used to do. They used to look at LDH, they used to look at CK. They still will measure CK because it helps them extrapolate both forward and backward in terms of estimating when you had your MI and how much damage you did. Um, but troponin being specific to heart muscle, uh, if heart muscle cells have died, can't maintain their sarcolemma, then their proteins will spill out. Tropo excess elevated troponin, there'll always be a little bit of troponin in the plasma, but elevated troponin in the plasma means heart muscle damage. And serial troponins, which is what they'll do sometimes every six hours, um, will help them create a graph, no matter how that troponin is changing, and be able to say, you're, you know, you didn't have chest pain, you didn't wake up till six, but you, you probably started having ischemia at four o'clock in the morning, um, and it looks like you're gonna have this much heart muscle damage. Is that just a way of kind of creating that timeline of cardiac muscle decay? Is yes. As more is yes. Produced, yeah, yeah. They can figure out that rate. Yeah, and, and one of the issues they, you know, they're trying to get ahead of is the congestive heart failure that you will have. Um, and the unfortunate thing about dead tissues anywhere, when cells die and their cell contents spill out, their cell contents can cause the death of adjacent cells. So especially elevated potassium and things like that. Um, so yeah, so they're monitoring that as well. So as the cells die, the troponins release? Yeah, because they, they can't be held in anymore. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's a different reason because that's a reperfusion injury, and we'll talk about that in pharmacology. Yeah. Um, ready for a break? Yeah. Okay. We reviewed the uh, atrioventricular valves, the names of them. What causes those AV valves to close? Pressure. Pressure. Excellent. So not papillary muscle contraction. The whole purpose of papillary muscle, remember, and the previous slide on, on cardiac muscle tissue actually showed that arrangement of fibers, right? So the whole heart twists and shortens 
during a contraction, using the skeleton of the heart as a rigid plate to work against. The papillary muscles contract as the floor of the ventricles get closer to the AV valves, and they do that in order to maintain enough tension so the valves don't fail and blow into the atria. Does that make sense? So people can have valve failure, and it's going to be more critical, especially on the left side, because you're trying to pump with greater pressure. If you have a heart attack and it affects the muscle of the papillary, mu the papillary muscles, right, and those don't contract, then you can have a valve failure in part, and you'll get a heart murmur and poor output from your left ventricle. It's the closure of those valves and the valves that prevent backward flow from the arteries back into the ventricles, those are the semilunar valves, that produce the heart sounds. The opening of the semilunars as well? The closing. So it's closing of the AV valves that actually produces the snapping sound. Closure of the semilunar valves. The lub dub. The lub dub. I thought when the ventricles contract, just remember the closing that it's opening. You're correct. When the ventricles contract, it opens the semilunar valves, but the sound you hear, in that case the lub, is the snapping closed of the AV valves. Which ones make the most so no, they're usually a little bit quieter. It's the AV valves, the first heart sound, the lub of the lub dub. The lub is the AV valves, the dub is the semi Correct. So the first lub is the tricuspid and bicuspid valves closing. Yep. There's only one lub. The first sound. Sorry. No, you're good. And then the dub is the pulmonary and aortic semilunar Yes, because those should be synchronized. Yeah? Yeah. Should be. Should be. Right? So here's, here's an echocardiogram showing those valves working. So when they do close, it snaps. Why the, like, the floppy before the shedding? Because there is, there is some turbulence, right? Is just because of the flow? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Five liters of blood a minute? Yeah. You're virtually your whole, your whole blood volume. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I want to learn. I know. Alrighty. So there's people who are now like 200 beats a minute. Yeah. And, and the, the problem with the rate that high, of course, is during that longer period of time of systole means a shorter period of time in diastole and less coronary filling. Yeah. 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 Right? So normal cardiac cycle, you guys are all comfortable with systole, diastole, normal cardiac cycle. Yeah. I don't know what isovolumic means. Uh, same volume. Iso means same. So isotonic, same concentration. Isovolumic, same volume. Yeah. 
So you contract and increase pressure to first close the valves, and then the, then the blood follows the path of least resistance out the aorta and pulmonary artery. But a roughly two-thirds of the time in each cardiac cycle, the ventricles are relaxed in diastole, and that's when the coronary arteries can fill. So again, here's the right, or sorry, left coronary artery and the left anterior descending, circumflex branch here, right coronary artery, serves the right atrium, serves the SA node, right? Branches down towards the apex of the heart. This is showing a catheter going up the aorta and highlighting the left coronary artery. So this is an angiogram as well as the circumflex branch on that left side. So we're just looking at the left side of the patient. You said it's a one-third, two-third? Nor in a heart that's at rest, yes. Mm -hmm. And why does coronary circulation happen during ventricular diastole? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's see. Hang on. There we go. So here, this is as if you created a cast of the aorta. So here is blood in the aorta and filling the cusps of the aortic semilunar valve. So when blood wants to fall backwards during ventricular diastole, it will still follow the path of least resistance into the right and left coronary arteries. And because the ventricle is not contracting, you're not squishing those arteries, right? If you maintain a powerful contraction in a skeletal muscle, you go anaerobic pretty quick because you're squishing all those arteries. So they can only fill when the muscle is relaxed. They also fill when the muscle is relaxed because blood is prevented from going back into the ventricle and instead follows the path of least resistance into those arteries. All right. Um, yeah. I saw a word laminar flow. Yeah. Uh, that just even flow or Where did I put that? There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're moving fast. We're gonna answer your questions. So normally you want laminar flow, right? With very little um, turbulence. But if you have an atherosclerotic plaque, that's gonna create at least two problems. It's gonna produce these little back eddies where the flow is really slow. Platelets don't like to move slow, right? Platelet likes to continue to march on always because if they are moving slowly or don't move at all, they're going to assume they're out of the bloodstream. And then they start initiating clotting. Yeah, then they, they start by that first platelet aggregation and activation, platelet plug formation, then they're going to activate chemicals for clotting. The other thing that, that atherosclerotic plaques do is they create points that are under constant stress. Right? So the upstream side of an atherosclerotic plaque is a common place for aneurysms to form, either at atherosclerotic plaques or for a similar reason at branches. Right? So that's why you tend to have aneurysms form at branches. So the connection of those platelets to the walls yeah. is stronger than that constant pressure of the flow. So most of the time that thrombus is going to be, and if we're not breaking down, right, if we're not exposing the endothelium here, it's going to be here where the blood flow is slow or stopped. Yeah. Is it common to get plaques on all sides of the wall in one area? It's more common like this picture where it starts to develop on one side, but it can, it can cause stenosis of the entire artery eventually. Because a lot of atherosclerotic plaque development is inflammation. 
And so that inflammation evolves from a focal point. Okay, so acute coronary syndromes. Let's get to the good mm -hmm. stuff, right? Um, depends on the degree of coronary occlusion. So again, not likely you're going to have um, a complete immediate occlusion. Sometimes that happens. Um, but there are a lot of things can happen to produce ACS signs and symptoms. The endothelium, especially if they're sufficiently anticoagulated, it can happen that the endothelium flops up. There's not a significant thrombus formation. And hours later, it flops back down and they're symptom-free. Or they have a cath and they can't find any place that, in, you know, that explains why they had their symptoms. Or you get a little bit of clot formation and then that clot develops over time. Um, you can have pain associated with vasospasm. And it's not always clear why you get these spasms of um, uh, uh, coronary artery, uh, arteries, but those also can resolve spontaneously. Um, sometimes we know what causes the vasospasm, like cocaine or excess nicotine or uh, even sometimes excess caffeine. Um, yeah. If the coronary artery is completely blocked, that form of acute coronary syndrome is called MI, myocardial infarction. Good. Okay. Also making the picture somewhat complicated, especially for the clinicians at the hospital, is that even if you have a total occlusion, and some people have a total chronic occlusion of their left anterior descending, but they're not having an acute coronary syndrome because they have a lot of collateral growth. Right? So muscles whether it's cardiac muscle or skeletal muscle, if you put them under an aerobic strain, they'll send out signals that say, please grow me some more blood vessels. So as the left anterior descending gets more and more occluded, muscles will say, please grow new branches off these healthy vessels. And you could have a chronic total occlusion of that left anterior descending and still have relatively normal left heart function. And that's usually only the case in like a slow Yes, slow developing cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Kind of, it kind of depends. Um, so there's likely several genetic components, but because uh, atherosclerosis has this inflammation component, it depends on your immune response to to those changes. So how do your macrophages respond? How do your smooth muscle cells respond? So. And how much calcium do you naturally deposit in your, in your scar tissue? Because this is a scar tissue kind of process in blood vessels. The faster you harden your arteries with calcium, the faster the damage as a result. Because if you're uh, inextensible, you're going to sustain more damage with every surge in blood pressure. Does that make sense? So are these pathways grow on the order of months? Oh, I don't know if I recall ever seeing that anybody's tried to show that timeline, except I have read that most 13, 14 year olds in this country have signs of arterial sclerosis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, yeah. I mean, in part it's related to, to, uh, to genetics, but it's also really related to lifestyle, right? You, can, you know you can change your proportion of LDLs to HDLs, and therefore your risk of having atherosclerotic plaques develop, depending on your exercise level. And then we eat a lot of packaged, prepared, really pretty crappy food. Yeah? So when I had fast food every day in high school? Yeah. <laughs> Dick's. Dick's. I went to school at Capitol Hill. We went to Dick's all the time. Yeah. 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 
Um, yeah, in terms of, and we've, and we've talked about this in a slightly different way in, in terms of looking at what you see in this moment on the EKG about the changes, but in terms of the amount of cell death as a result of an ACS, it depends on the, how long the ischemia has lasted um, and, and then how do the cells respond to that. I told you my, my mother-in-law uh, had chest pain for almost 12 hours before she went to the ER in early December, and by the time she got to the ER, she was pain-free, only because those cells and all the pain receptors associated with them were now dead, not because anything resolved. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. Yep. So you are going to get a conversation about EKGs this afternoon, but I just wanted to introduce some ideas so that you could be thinking about these things as you're looking at rhythm strips, for example, or 12 leads. So in the evolution of an acute coronary syndrome, there are changes that appear early, midway, late, may last forever, or may reverse. So most of the changes that you'll be talking about can be short-lived or transient, right? The duration and the magnitude of those EKG changes depends on how severe the ischemia is, right? And including those other factors like how much collateral circulation do you have. So in the ischemic phase, it's like sitting cross-legged on your leg and you've temporarily restricted blood flow, right? And often not completely restricted, right? Your foot doesn't turn completely blue, but circulation is poor and poor enough that cells are compromised in their ability to do work. And in the heart, nociceptors are going to be stimulated by that um, poor oxygenation or change in pH. In the injury phase, cells now have been um, severely compromised, compromising the ability of the heart to maintain cardiac output. And in the infarction phase, as you described before, that's a complete occlusion. Those cells are now cut off from their glucose and oxygen supply. Yeah? The book talks about electrical phase, uh, circulatory phase, and metabolic phase. Is that, would that be oh, crap. similar to what you're talking about here? Oh, crap. Oh, crap. <laughs> um, is, is that, so the phase is electrical phase. So you see an electrical change. And it had like a minute, like zero to four minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. 10, I think, is yeah. Circulation. 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 And then over 10. Circulation meaning local coronary circulation or systemic circulation? Yeah, I didn't know. Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, missed that. MI, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 This is, I don't have this volume of the book, so I, I was looking at the online, what was available online, but I think, I think so, but I, uh, but your tests are from the textbook? No. Okay. All right. I think we're okay because yeah. I I don't I don't hear those terms used. Yeah. So. I don't care. I just yeah. Okay. So in this picture, I think this is is helpful because just you know squinting your eyes and you look at it and you see this bullseye effect, right? This is a bullseye effect that progressed over time. So think maybe in terms of a peb throwing a pebble in the water. Initially, right? This area of the heart muscle was ischemic, and initially, so several minutes ago, it would appear in this white area, right? So it, there's ischemia first, right? 
And then depending on the size of that occlusion in this figure, they're trying to say this is going to progress to a complete infarction. Um, then you see that area of ischemia, ischemia progress to an area of injury and eventually progress to an area of, of infarction. So this is the oldest area of, of injury in this of lesion, right? This is the oldest part of the lesion. And these are expanding parts of the lesion as the lesion grows. Does that make sense? So you recognize and really, you can't, you, you'll, you'll be told this, right? You'll talk about this. You really can't assess um, injury, ischemia, infarction from a three-lead monitored lead. But um, in the basic pattern of an EKG, when you're ischemic, you may see some ST changes, right? ST when you're injured, you might start to see some ST elevation. And infarcted, usually a deepening of the Q wave as you're waiting and waiting and waiting for tissue cells to begin to depolarize. Getting, doing that end run, yeah, around the blockage of electrical conduction. Okay, uh, that's what I was gonna ask, what, what the bigger amplitude of the Um, it's not so much the, as much the direction of the deflection of the pen, except the direction of the deflection of the pen tells you you're going in a, not the normal direction. So that's when like axis deviation yeah, yeah, yeah. comes into play. Yeah, and then what's more important is how wide this is, because this is time, right? We're trying to get electrical conduction to where we need to, to depolarize the ventricles, but it's taking us a while to get there. Yeah. Do STEMIs get the sort of esteem that they do or the uh, seriousness that they do because you're still in a phase of injury and not the function where something can be? Yeah, so you're, you've, you can assume you've progressed from an area of ischemia and you're heading towards infarction. Exactly. Yeah, so I think that then that's why we're talking about that because it is a progression, which is so it helps you really own the time is muscle idea. Mm -hmm. What is a torvastatin? So a torvastatin or Coreg, right? No, a torvastatin is Plavix. No. Whatever that. No, a torvastatin is a cholesterol drug. It's Coreg. Yeah, yeah. Is it a torvastatin, the 80 milligram? Yeah. Yeah. Is is a. So why is it good for an MI? Yeah. Oh. There's supposed to be some a reduction of swelling for some reason. Oh. Acutely, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To get it in the field. And we only give it in STEMIs where we think that it's a true STEMI. Uh, it's supposed to help with the swelling response that the body would otherwise have. The swell, the inflammation in the... Inflammation, um, generally speaking... Oh, yeah. Atorvastatin is Lipitor. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes, yes. Sorry. That yeah. just came into the protocols, right? Giving Lipitor when there's a STEMI? Yeah. Okay. But it's not really doing a pre-hospital function. It's it's more of looking ahead. It's looking ahead. So maybe it's maybe. It's not helpful for us on site. Right. right. It's not going to change rhythm. It's not going to change the clot formation. Yeah. Um, we're giving it to kind of help them buy a little bit of time during that injury phase. I don't even know. I don't. Yeah. I don't even know if it's that. I because it's a it's a common post MI drug that you're on now for the rest of your life. 
um, if you weren't already on it. And you said that's just to keep the swelling down? Well, that I, I don't know anything about that. So That's the, that's the reason we were told. Was yeah, yeah. In addition to reducing cholesterol in the long term, more acutely being the first number of hours after MMI, it can help reduce a little bit of the swelling that you might have. I'll, I'll try to look it up, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm sure it's something that came from the cardiologist, the interventional cardiologist, not from, you know, emergency or, or you know, medical program director. All right. So, again, the progression of damage. So, a little bit now more over time. So, white ischemia, red injury, brown or black. Done. Yeah, <laughs> you're well done, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, so a different way of presenting the same information that was on the on the previous slide, right? So maybe some T wave changes, maybe some ST depression, but as you enter the injury phase, then you get the fire helmet, right, effect or the tombstone effect with ST elevation. Hopefully, they've called by now, right? Yes. And this is not part of this class, but from what I understand, like the ST segment elevation. Yep. After someone has an MI, over time, the ST uh, comes back to baseline. Should come back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Q wave appears. Persists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so muscle, certainly that is infarcted, is not conducting electricity. Injured muscle will conduct electricity differently, maybe more slowly. Um, and if you kill muscle, it's gone forever and does get replaced with scar tissue. That scar tissue can conduct a little bit of electricity because it's full of water, right? But it's going to be slower. It's not going to be as efficient and it's not going to contribute to pumping. Um, if, if people can if receive their intervention in an early ischemic phase, they can reverse all this. And so a lot of your patients, the next morning when they wake up after they've had their cath, will find it hard to believe that they had a heart attack because they feel great. Huh. What yeah. Do? Yeah. Uh, Jim? Yeah. Could you, could you talk about what's happening <laughs> physiologically that causes the inversion of the T-wave? Um, usually, any so it's an impairment in the ability to repolarize, mostly because you can't run your sodium-potassium pumps. Um, it's a population of cells, but generally when waves are in the opposite direction than they should be, it's because you're conducting in the opposite direction. Yeah. 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 So it would be that river getting blocked, right? So yeah. Cell by cell and to Making an end run. Yeah. I mean, you're always going cell by cell. You're all, on an EKG, you're always looking at the population of cells either in the atrium or in the ventricles. Um, repolarization is also in the ventricles, but something is not allowing the normal start of that repolarization, so it starts someplace else and gets picked up by, so it's not going to look the same on every single lead, but it means it's traveling in a different direction. Yeah, I guess I don't understand why, because depolarization and repolarization are in the same direction. Yeah. I don't understand why that would, that, yeah, yeah. that relationship would be. Yeah. Um, so ST. Elevation means that your depolarization is, is also, because it lengthens out that QRS complex, um, going in a different direction too, okay. right? But you're already, well, yeah, a lot of times uh, you, you 
start in the right place and then because that, that um, action potential begins at the apex in the muscle and then it hits a blockage and then it goes around. Yeah. I think, John, I don't yeah. know if my understanding is totally correct. Like if you have your heart and, you know, say this is your ventricle uh, and you have an electrode that's sensing electricity going this way, if you have like ischemia or injury on this side, the Purkinje fibers that are running in, down the middle, they're going to fire both sides of the ventricle, right? Well, if you have one side of your heart that's not conducting, you'll, the electrode is only sensing the electricity that's going that way. And versus like if the electricity is going this way towards the electrode, it's a positive deflection. But if there's no positive deflection because this side of the heart is like ischemic or whatever, it's only sensing the electricity going the other way. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Perfect. All right. Um, we'll go through this pretty quickly because this is, this is cardiovascular review of ANP, but I thought we'd talk about some of the most common um, uh, complaints. So stable angina as distinguished from an ACS, unstable angina. Um, your demand for oxygen because of the work that you're asking the heart to do uh, is insufficient and those heart muscles don't like to be without sufficient oxygen, but this, this could happen because they're walking to the mailbox, right? Um, and as soon as they alter their uh, activity level or their emotional state, so a lot of people get their angina pain because they're arguing with their spouse or their kid or something like that. Um, if they rest, or they take their nitroglycerin, or they put on their HOMO2, and they correct this insufficient supply of oxygen, and the pain goes away. That's just because all of their vessels are, you know, presumably all of their coronary vessels are small, and they just can't provide enough oxygenated blood through those smaller vessels to support that increased activity level of the heart. So usually relieved by changes in behavior, but also by nitroglycerin or oxygen administration. And any EKG EKG changes that might be present as soon as you've corrected that minor deficiency in oxygen, their symptoms and their EKG changes go away. Um, yeah, so chronic narrowing of the arteries because of an atherosclerotic plaque or a blood vessel spasm. Um, a lot of times we don't know why the spasm is occurring, but it resolves and heart muscle doesn't die. So there's no injury, there's no infarction. Is that mm -hmm. the uh, spasm, is that Potentially, potentially, they don't, they just, yeah. Yeah, it can happen without exercise. The blood, blood vessel spasm, yeah, yeah can happen without exercise. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, in unstable angina, which is an acute coronary syndrome, usually this unstable plaque covered by endothelium, so it's under the endothelium, that endothelium ruptures, like the speed bump, platelets recognize something other than the normal lining of blood vessels, the split platelets get activated, they start to form a platelet plug, they activate clotting factors, and the idea of hemostasis is to evolve the biggest clot possible in the shortest amount of time, so it is possible to completely occlude that coronary artery. Mm -hmm. So there's the possibility for a clot growing in one place and yes. completely occluding, and there's also a possibility for the breakage of a pre-existing piece of plaque or clot to float and then get stuck on? That doesn't, that doesn't happen 
spontaneously too often. That definitely happens during heart catheterizations when they're trying to you know, get a balloon past a, a clot and or an atherosclerotic plaque and they break pieces of plaque away or they grind pieces of plaque away that have been hardened with calcium and then they just shower the, the downstream circulation with little pieces of atherosclerotic plaque. Yeah, I mean, heart disease is not fixable. <laughs> you can just reduce the severity in a short period of time, yeah. So in this case, it's about the uh, clotting factors like growing there yeah. and then occluding the... Yeah, so, so everything in this patient that develops unstable angina, this patient had angina before, and now something has changed about their lesion, and now they're forming a clot, and they're, and they're, and they're uh, causing some downstream muscle to become ischemic. Um, yeah, can be the first episode or a change in their usual pattern. Most of these people with angina try to treat at home with their nitroglycerin. Um, you know, if they uh, have, who was I talking, oh, my, my mother-in-law told me afterwards she had been taking her nitroglycerin maybe four times a day. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, unstable angina, we can see all those changes that we talked about before as you develop from ischemia to injury. And, and to infarct. So it's usually a changing lesion, so from stable angina to unstable angina, a clot is forming. Um, it's unlikely that a progressing plaque is slowly limiting blood supply. It's gonna usually be um, a, a clot formation. An acute MI, blood is suddenly and completely blocked to a portion of the heart muscle. There's nothing the patient can do to change that pain. Nitroglycerin won't help. Rest won't help. Breathing doesn't help. What's that now? Ketamine. ketamine? Do you give ketamine for MI? No, no. Oh, okay. everything. <laughs> okay, all right. And we've talked about this before. Um, so in, a, in, a, in across the country, about 25% of MIs actually result in cardiac dysrhythmias or or cardiac arrest of various forms. Um, certainly you have cardiogenic shock, the inability of the pump to work well enough compromises blood flow, not only to the brain, but to other vital organs. Um, congestive heart failure begins immediately. Um, following that MI, so that complete occlusion and um, cell wall death, uh, that tissue before it has uh, been able to repair with scar tissue is in danger of rupture. So uh, I didn't witness this happen. I responded to the cardiac arrest in the um, cafeteria. It was a volunteer in the cafeteria. I don't remember. I remember her. I remember what she looked like. But huh? No, at, at the hospital. Yeah. Um, and um, she was just eating lunch at the volunteers' table and said something like, oh no, <laughs> and that was it. She ruptured her ventricle, she developed a cardiac tamponade, done. Yeah, even in the hospital, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> the late complications, the late complications of MI are for the most part, part related to congestive heart failure. Um, so if you've had an MI, you uh, 
are at risk, have a 40% chance of dying in the next year. Usually, because you're not going to reverse your cardiovascular disease, and now you have congestive heart failure, which puts greater demands on the heart as it is. So I thought you might be, I, I love this picture, and this is going to take some time to kind of absorb, but I think this is helpful. Um, so here is that right coronary artery resulting primarily in a posterior inf infarction. So this cross section, um, this is the front of the heart, this is the front of the heart, interventricular septum. So a right coronary, especially a high right coronary artery conclusion, occlusion rather, is going to compromise that posterior part of the heart all the way down to the apex. Um, and also likely compromise circulation to the SA node. So right coronary, I mean, all of these are bad, but they, um, um, they, they have some predictable consequences. Um, so my mom's, M, well, I call her my mom because she's the only mom I've had, um, but uh, so her whole apex of her heart doesn't move anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, the left anterior descending obviously affects the anterior heart and primarily the left ventricle. So a lot of times they'll call an occlusion here the widowmaker, right? Because if you significantly compromise your left ventricle, you just can't have any systemic cardiac output to the brain, to the kidneys, to the liver, all those vital organs that make you, make you work. And then that left circumflex that wraps around the back uh, produces a lateral infarct in, again, the left ventricle. So anything originating in the left coronary artery or its branches compromises, obviously, the left ventricle, the pumping ventricle of the systemic circuit. So these, 30, these percentages, for some reason, this is just statistics, I can't explain why, um, most of your infarcts are in that left anterior descending. Um, I can't ex explain that, and it, but it, in part it might be related to identification, reporting and identification, right? But, because a lot of people have silent MBIs. Don't we have variation across populations as to which, like, the right side in most people? Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 So there is individual variation, which you cannot know until you are in the cath lab and you can actually picture those, you know, inject dye into all those vessels and picture them. And which is why we're not going beyond these major vessels and the major branches. So this is the general scheme of things. Generally speaking, that's all we can go for. Yeah, yeah. In our call for what we feel like it is, it's either an inferior wall MI, it's a, a an inferior wall MI, it's going to be your right one that goes around, correct? And goes yeah. down underneath the heart there to try to feed over to the inferior area. So that, um, you know, leads to 3 and ADF, like that's the typical inferior wall MI, and then you want to be careful about that. So that's what we have to kind of be worried about for our treatment plan. Otherwise, we can make sure people have a good enough blood pressure and get nitro to people generally and, and and watch for other dysrhythmias. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it's on the right side. So yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be diagnosing where you think it is. You can be wrong. It's okay. 
but generally, like we're saying, lateral lymphar, you know, inferior, anterior, those would be the terms you will use when you describe the location of your artery. And these also drive like V4R, V5R, like considering yeah. right sided lead placement or mm -hmm. electrode placement. Posterior. Posterior. Yeah, we just had Dr. Hines say it's all, you don't need to worry about that. Don't, that's something that the doctors will do later. And he's, uh, he's he, uh, as a cardiologist, says that, that you don't need to do that in the field. But well, the, you have to have time in order to do that, right? Frequently not. Yeah. It's hard to get yeah. leads around someone's back, you know, without taking more time on the scene. Yeah. Because you want to do that when you're still, not when you're in the back road, rolling, rolling. Down, uh, the road, you know. So that means usually more time. And so Dr. Hines said, I'd rather you not spend that time. You guess where you think the MI is, you bring them in if they have ST elevation, but you're not quite sure if it is, if it is a, a MI because you don't have enough elevation in two leads and you can bring one around the back and look at it. He said, great, but if it's going to take more time, I'd rather you not. So he just wants us to come in. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's Dr. Hines, but different doctors will say different things, but he's one of the, definitely one of the big docs in our community. So. Kind of represents a little bit of the other cardiologists, I think, but not everyone. I'm sure. And you're saying, like, in the sense that time is bringing the strokes, time is muscle with yep. this. Yep. So that's why they're saying her. Yeah. And that's why they get those little signs on the like time from dispatch to balloon. Oh yeah, yeah. All this cath lab stuff and how fast they go that all relates to us in the field as well. So we should be thinking about moving quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if they're talking about 13 minutes, that kick ass will. How long did we spend getting a 12 week mm -hmm. on scene, you know? Mm -hmm. If we could clean up two minutes on scene, that would have been a good thing, right? So and and the, the early report, um, so they can get, if, if it's not during regular business hours, they can get the cath lab crew there, right. too. Yeah. Although, do they have cath lab nurses always there? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just certain times. I thought it was until a certain time and then they have to... Call them in. I yeah. think they have to call in cardiologists. Yes. But I thought that they did have nursing staff there all the time now. Yeah. But it's been a bit off and on. So I yeah. Don't yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Lucy. I'll see. Yeah. Lucy, or, yeah, I'll try to ask about that and I'll try to ask about the atorvastatin too. Okay. All right. So as I mentioned, oh, how much do I, am I here till 10 or 11? 10. 10. Okay. So we got about 15 minutes. Okay. So <laughs> congestive heart failure. Is, as I said, is a major early and late complication of MI. Um, so about 70% of patients following their MI have some congestive heart failure. If it's left ventricle compromised, then it means that the left ventricle cannot push blood from the right side into the systemic circulation. That pressure backs up and you, get, you tend to get pulmonary edema. Okay. Um, if it's the right ventricle, the right pump that's compromised, then you can't bring blood from the systemic circuit and move it into the pulmonary circuit. So that pressure backs up, usually in dependent limbs. So you usually get pedal edema, peripheral edema, no matter whatever's in the, in the dependent position. Um, heart failure can compromise eventually the entire heart because you have that um, finite amount of blood in a closed circuit pressures can be transmitted throughout the entire circuit if you're not, you know, depending on the degree of congestive heart failure and compromise. 
here's what happens and here's why congestive heart failure um, is a progressive disease process and has such a high mortality rate associated with it. So if you're unable to produce adequate pressure, especially in the systemic circulation, your body's gonna respond in the only ways it knows how to normally regulate blood pressure, so it's gonna activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. So that is that really complex homeostatic mechanism that involves multiple chemical messages, but starts with the kidney, right? Kidney says, I don't have enough pressure to filter blood, so I'm gonna release this enzyme into the bloodstream. It's gonna begin the activation of angiotensin, Angiotensin all by itself causes vasoconstriction, but it also signals the hypothalamus to release ADH, antidiuretic hormone, and it signals the adrenal cortex to release the salt-retaining hormone, aldosterone. So you have multiple mechanisms. This is why the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is so important in trauma, because you have multiple overlapping mechanisms for long-term conservation of water. But that might serve to increase blood volume and blood pressure, but your pump is still compromised, right? So it doesn't solve the problem of pulmonary edema, and in fact, it increases afterload on the pump. So like putting in too much oil into your car, if, you ha if you're pushing against pressure, um, that's going to compromise the heart even further. You're going to get a larger heart, thicker muscle, and a, a thicker, larger heart muscle is not going to be as effective at first taking in blood and then squishing that blood out. Um, in, the, in the short term, trying to maintain blood pressure, you're going to get vasoconstriction, and again, that increases the afterload, that back pressure that the heart is trying to work against. Um, you might actually see increases in heart, heart rate. But over time, because that mechanism isn't sufficient, the heart responds by that constant screaming by the sympathetic nervous system, I'm just not going to listen to you anymore. Right? So you have a weakened heart uh, that no longer is as responsive to the sympathetic nervous system as it used to be, and that worsens your ability to pump even further especially to respond to physical stress. Left ventricle gets thicker. Um, there's a, a lot of changes that they can't completely explain, and they can't completely explain why some of these experimental procedures work, like lopping off huge portions of the left ventricle to <laughs> make it smaller again. Um, but you can have, as, as a part of the congestive heart failure process, with hypertrophy, more cell death, without MI. So... Um, and changes in the metabolism of that heart muscle compromise, probably leading to that cell death. So action potential gets longer, you're trying to squeeze longer, but that also um, is not necessarily more efficient and doesn't correct the poor circulation in heart failure. All right, so we've talked about this already. Renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, the catecholamines, norepi, epi, and even dopamine uh, via the sympathetic nervous system and the calcium-dependent contraction in heart muscle. So the two components are heart rate and stroke volume. We've talked a lot about this. So I'm going to go pretty fast, right? So end diastolic volume 
is that volume of blood that can be loaded into the heart before contraction or preload. The more stretched, the more extensible or extended that heart muscle is, the stronger the contraction, the more work can be done. Um, stretching of the SA node with venous return to the right atrium also increases the rate of action potentials generated, so increases heart rate. But that is usually a very short-lived reflex, usually at the start of exercise. The cardiac center in the medulla is responsible for uh, regulating cardiac output, mostly by looking at pressure in the aorta and the carotid sinuses. Uh, but also looking at the chemical components in that plasma, oxygen level, carbon dioxide, and pH. Of those three chemical changes in blood plasma, which is the most powerful on the cardiac center for the control of cardiac output? Oxygen, carbon dioxide, or pH? All of those are monitored in these peripheral locations and sends that information to the cardiac center. For cardiac output, it's carbon dioxide. Absolutely. Good. And with carbon dioxide, changes in pH. Right? So that's what's most important to cardiac output, but when we see specifically derangements in pH, we can see an effect on, on, on heart rate especially. So in the diabetic patients not controlling their diabetes, they're using fats for energy, they're producing a lot of keto acids, they can be uh, breathing like crazy as well as having um, a high heart rate. Um, yeah. We'll do this. So, like I said, we'll probably be able to finish this up on Thursday. So we've talked about the role of calcium. We've talked about action potentials. We've mentioned the general effects of the sympathetic nervous system on the heart. So norepinephrine and epinephrine find beta-1 adrenergic receptors on the heart, right? And you can remember that because... There you go, one heart, two lungs, very good. Um, so with sympathetic stimulation, right, norepi, epi line, lands on those beta-1 receptors, it increases sodium influx. This is on the, um, on the myocardium, so it increases sodium influx, so you generate an action potential faster, but most importantly, it increases calcium influx. And so more calcium in the cardiac muscle cells means that you, oh, sorry, we're not talking about, oh, we're talking about contraction over here, increases contraction force. This is just on heart rate, right? Um, calcium is part of that action potential that results from the SA node. So we need both of these cations to in, enter those cells in order to increase heart rate. How, how does calcium affect? We'll, we'll see it. We'll, we'll see in just a second. We'll review that in just a second. On the other side of this figure, it's looking at parasympathetic neurons that are leaving the cardiac center. The, the neurotransmitter is acetylcholine that lands on muscarinic receptors uh, on those autorhythmic cells. Changes re the rate of repolarization primarily. So prolongs repolarization, which means that you um, uh, slow the... Uh, lengthen the time period between subsequent depolarizations and decreases heart rate. The long-term effects of epi, or even the short-term effects, right? Um, we increase the force of contraction, but in the long-term, especially training effects, the way in which someone who's well-trained for aerobic work can get more work out of the heart is 
Repeated exposure to norepi or epi at the ventricle muscle increases the action of calcium pumps, so you're better at moving calcium to do that work. You remove the calcium from the cytosol faster, but you also increase the amount of calcium that you can store inside those heart muscle cells, because heart muscle cells get calcium from both internal stores and extracellular fluid. All right. So, do you remember the transmembrane electrical potential? What can you tell me? What is in a resting cell? Where are the ions? Sodium. More sodium outside. Potassium. More potassium, potassium inside. Lots of negatively charged proteins inside the cell. Those are the biggest components, right? When we're talking about cardiac muscle cells or even cardiac autorhythmic cells, like of the SA node, what does the concept of threshold mean to you? Yeah, so a, a voltage change necessary to open up voltage-gated channels. Perfect. Good. Depolarization results from? Uh, yeah, influx of positive ions that bring you to that positive internal charge, because initially the inside of the cell is net negative, and repolarization reversing that charge. Um, which ions move into a cell to depolarize the cell? And which ions leave? Good. And calcium may be involved in slightly different ways because it's also a cation, but those are the big players. Sodium in for depolarization, potassium out for repolarization. And then what's the refractory period? The state where the muscle cannot be depolarized. Because? The fluid hasn't been brought back to its action or ability to do stuff. Mm -hmm. it hasn't completely repolarized or might be temporarily hyperpolarized, right? And it would take a bigger voltage change to reach your threshold again. Good. So here's that resting membrane potential. The big players are the sodium potassium pumps to maintain that high concentration of sodium outside, high concentration of potassium inside. But the inside of the cell is net negative because there's these large negatively charged proteins that never leave. And then we've got both sodium channels and potassium channels that allow those ions to move down their concentration gradient. If the sodium channel opens, sodium's gonna rush in. That's gonna change the charge inside the cell from negative to positive, and the membrane is no longer polarized. It's positive outside, it's positive inside now, it's depolarized. In order to go back to that positive on one side, negative on the other side, we have to have potassium leave to repolarize. Are all three of those, the sodium potassium pump, the potassium channel, and sodium channels, are they all ATP driven? Only the pump is ATP driven. Okay, so These ion channels are either gated by, in, the, in this context, in cardiac physiology, voltage or chemicals. The chemicals would be things like norepinephrine, epinephrine, and acetylcholine, and then voltage controls some of the other channels. And, and the potassium channels involved in repolarization on the muscle are all voltage regulated. So they're not passive. Yeah. All right. You have a pretty good handle on the anatomy of the cardiac conduction system, yeah? Okay. And the sequence. All right. <laughs> so here's part when you're talking about um, uh, anti-dysrhythmic uh, anti drugs, right? Uh, here's part of what you need to know. 
This is for, for example, SA node cells, the normal pacemaker of the cells. It's true for all parts of the cardiac conduction system, but normally the SA node sets the rate. Membrane potential on the, on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. Um, the cells, the number is not so important, but they're net negative, right? When they're at their so-called, even though it's short-term, resting potential. Sodium potassium pump is working all the time. And at the beginning of the spontaneous drift to that minimum voltage, the threshold potential, we have potassium that was going out rapidly because we're finishing repolarization here. And so that's this big arrow here, but those potassium channels tend to close as we finish repolarization, and that's why the out arrows are getting smaller. Meanwhile, there's a steady influx of sodium. And on balance over time, what that means is you're going to slowly but surely, as potassium leaves less and sodium moves in at the same rate, you're going to drift to threshold. Okay? But we need a little boost with another cation, since we're not going to change the rate of sodium diffusion. And so about halfway through this drift to threshold voltage, you open up a set of calcium channels that are sometimes called the, the slow or long-acting calcium channels, the L-type calcium channels. They need to know that for cardiac drugs, right? Yeah. Okay? Does that make sense? So you open up a set of calcium channels that have um, not a rapid effect on these cells, but contributes to the depolarization. Okay, that's all we're trying to do. Because these are nodal cells and don't have the contraction mechanism, this calcium is not at all about contraction, mm -hmm. just continuing to depolarize. It's just about the addition of cations and pushing towards the We just need more charge. positive charges. So when we say we're going to give a calcium channel blocker, is this the channel that we're uh, generally, well, de depends on the drug. So most, so, so a drug like metoprolol is not a very specific calcium channel blocker. So you'll see, yeah, so, so, oh yeah, metoprolol is a beta blocker, sorry. Calcium channel blocker, verapamil. Verapamil, um, Which are also not very specific. So there's a lot of subcategories of these L-type calcium channels. So you'll see a de decrease in heart rate as well as vasodilation. And so both actions help lower blood pressure. Is our giving that drug, uh, like, making it more difficult to reach the threshold potential for contraction? For the action potential that's conducted by the cardiac conduction system. So the result is this drift to threshold takes a longer period of time, which means you lengthen out the period of time between action potentials, which slows heart rate. Okay? Um, at the threshold voltage, a different type of calcium channel. So this type of calcium channel, what opens this type of calcium channel right here? This long-lasting. This particular voltage, right? And at the threshold potential, a different type of calcium channel opens that's opened by a different voltage difference across the membrane. Does that make sense? Okay, because these channels um, are tweaked by what is essentially that static electricity and some, the long lasting, the first set of calcium channels at a lower voltage tweak open, 
but it takes a higher voltage to tweak open the transient or fast-acting calcium channels. As soon as you do this, notice that it's calcium influx. Now, even though sodium had a contribution towards that threshold, towards that initial depolarization, it's calcium that's responsible for the depolarizing phase of the action potential. If you're trying to stabilize, so membrane stabilizing drugs usually affect sodium channels. I'm not talking about amiodarone, which has multiple effects, but a lot of membrane stabilizing cardiac drugs are working on these sodium channels, so we're not spontaneously depolarizing as quickly. And so you don't get to these thresholds that result in an action potential generation. Because again, all cardiac muscle cells are capable of this, and they're trying to do this, but the normal cardiac conduction system gets there first and is directing them. This is illustrating just those cells. Like, even if you just thought of this as the SA node right now. It's just as the SA node is fine, yeah. The fastest one that, that just drifts to potential and then kicks off on its own, that's how it works. Is it, that, it's illustrating that. Yeah. But like you're saying, if the SA node's knocked out, other ones will take over, but they work at a slightly different rate. Yeah. So they're not as likely to cause the regular automaticity of the heart, right. the regular rate of the heart to be driven because they do it a smidge slower than the SA Right, does. right, right. Yeah. So are those calcium channels what separate those foci from the, the higher level foci? That they, they it's just the, the level of the same. Um, oh, so, yeah, no, we'll come back. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so to be honest, I am not sure if they have yet another type of L-type calcium channel or if it's all about that balance between potassium efflux and sodium influx. Because usually if you have these ectopic, you know, an ectopic focus in a ventricle, giving a membrane stabilizing drug corrects it. So that's affecting mostly sodium influx. So I I'm, I'm tend to think, I don't know this for sure, that the calcium channels are basically all the same. It's just a matter of getting to the voltage necessary to open up those calcium channels. Which would be dependent on how many of those sodium yes. channels there are allowing the sodium to drift yes. slowly. Yeah. So you would have ones that had more sodium channels than the SA node and ones with a couple less sodium channels in the membrane wall. That are working, yeah. The lower ones. Yeah. Yeah. I know you said the numbers didn't matter, but I'm seeing the numbers are different. Yeah. Negative 60. Minus 90, minus 70 at skeletal muscle. So what is that representing? Is that so what general heart? This, this now represent ventricle muscle cells, muscle cells in the heart. Skeletal muscle cells have a resting potential of about minus 70. SA node cells have a resting potential of about minus 60. That number is not so important, but what contributes to negative inside a cell is the proteins and how many proteins they have. Because the, the extracellular fluid is the same for everybody. Uh -huh. And the SA node being the pacemaker has a lower threshold potential than ventricles, right? Um, well, yeah, it is a little bit lower, but, but the threshold potential of ventricle muscles is moot. We don't care. Because what we, always, what we always do to stimulate muscle cell conduction of electricity is apply electricity. And then the, it, where there's no drift to threshold, we apply electricity here from Purkinje fibers via gap junctions to those contracting cells. There's no decision to be made here. You always open up voltage-gated sodium channels and you depolarize completely.
So the nodal cells versus the regular myocardial cells yeah. are different in terms of their induction of uh, sodium. Yes. Calcium. Yes. This is what I remember from AP. I don't and and this. And so, and for the most part, when you're talking about cardiac drugs, this is what you're working on. Because you're trying to fix pumping action of the pump, right? Yeah. That's what you're first and foremost, most often, trying to fix. Yeah, because you're talking about how the sodium just comes in at this constant rate. Yeah. And then, but I was remembering. Yeah, yeah, story. yeah, yeah. And so, unlike those, those nodal cells, sodium, as per typ typical of muscle, sodium is responsible for depolarization. We depolarize completely. And then calcium leaks in through calcium voltage-gated channels. So those are also called slow calcium channels. And it prolongs the action potential plateau. So it lengthens out the action potential. And so it, it lengthens the refractory period. So you can't sustain a contraction in a heart muscle cell. And that calcium gets to contribute to the contraction mechanism. So it has two roles. So I thought we'd just look at both those graphs. And I'd probably recommend that you print the individual slides. These two slides, so you have handouts that you can write on. Yeah? Um, I remember from me talking about the, the theoretical maximum heart rate. Yes. Yeah, so a little less because that's a quarter, so it's about 240. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it's a quarter of a second. How does that relate to, and is that for when you have, that's your max that you could have with the full depolarization, repolarization? Right, or? right. Okay. Yeah. You might see something higher depending on how long those calcium channels are allowed to stay open. So there might be some variation. But based on this information, the calculated maximum would be 240. And that's not a good rate because there's no diastole. So you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'll go back to pacemaker cells uh, when we start on Thursday. And I, I think. I don't know exactly where we are. Um, yeah, we're, we're if we get to this stage, we're almost done. So I think I think we'll we'll uh, we'll do pretty good in terms of finishing this up and then moving on to pharmacology. Don't underestimate our question. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, you saw how long it took us to get to the first three slides. Yeah. <laughs> I think it took us forty-five minutes. On the it did to get to slide three. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.